We live in a society that's filled with big announcements. New products, the latest phone. It's always a big announcement. No company ever says, we have a moderate-sized announcement we're going to make next week. We're going to announce a product that you might be interested in. No, it's always, this is the biggest. And so companies, organizations work to carefully choose a spokesman to make the announcement. It might be the famous founder who is respected and steps forth to make the announcement. Or it might be they think carefully, who is a celebrity who could lead out in making this announcement for us? Social media influencers leverage their influence, their power, so that they are paid to make these announcements as well. So companies go to great lengths to choose a messenger who can give the right message at the right time and that their sort of personality can fit the brand, can promote their company, their product, clearly. And today in our passage, we'll see one of, if not the strangest, most unique spokesman ever. A spokesman that you or I or nor any business school in town would ever choose as the spokesman. But he comes with a unique message, and the uniqueness of the messenger points to, we'll see, the uniqueness of this king that he'll point us to. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 3. Today we're in Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. So we provided some Bibles near you, and those Bibles you'll find it on page 808. Page 808. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 3. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. There's a table at the back of the room. There's a stack of Bibles there. On your way out today, you don't have to ask anybody. Just grab one of those Bibles. Take it with you. It would be our joy for you to take one. So today we continue our series in the book of Matthew as we come to Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Today, as we look at our passage, we're going to see this. The king and his kingdom have come, so we should turn to him and find true life. The king and his kingdom have come, so we should turn to him and find true life. And we'll see that in three movements in the text. First, we'll see the announcement of the king. Second, we'll see responses to the king. And then third, the way of the king. So first, the announcement of the king in verses 1 to 4. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus and his family had fled to Egypt when Jesus was somewhere younger than two. So flee, they were fleeing from King Herod, who was killing uh, the children with an attempt to kill Jesus, and so they fled to Egypt. We're not told how long they stayed there, but our text last week then ended as they moved back to Nazareth. Now, Matthew tells us nothing between that until today's text. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there's one more episode where Jesus, at the age of 12, goes to the temple with his family. But other than that, None of the Gospels tell us anything from the time of only a very young child up until Jesus enters the scene as an adult around the age of 30. And our passage today picks up just before Jesus is to enter into his public ministry. And this moment also is after 400 years of silence for God's people. God had graciously, faithfully, over the generations, sent forth spokesmen prophets, who when they spoke, they would speak the very word of God to God's people, but there had come a time of silence. Generations with no word from God. But now God was speaking again through this prophet. God was speaking to this one who we call John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told a little bit more about John's background, that he was uh, the son of Elizabeth, who was the cousin of Mary. So John the Baptist and Jesus would have been cousins, separated by only a few months in age. And we see a bit about John's appearance in in verse 4. Look down at verse 4. It says, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This was not normal to dress this way. And John intentionally pursues this dress. He wears this because he understands himself to be fulfilling the prophecies that God had given that one like Elijah, like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, one in the spirit of Elijah would come preparing the way for the Messiah. So John understands his role, so he comes in a sort of retro fashion. This would be almost like if a senator in D.C. was going to try to make a speech and they dressed like one of the earliest settlers of this country. It would be odd. It would be attention-grabbing that they would be dressed so differently. And that's what John is doing. And he also has this strange, distinctive diet, locust, grasshoppers he's eating, and wild honey. Now, perhaps you want to craft sort of the latest fad diet. Maybe you take this on, right? You can just craft, you know, locusts and honey, wear a crazy belt, and you might be a a social media influencer. And that that might be what you lead out. But, But here John is clearly distinct in every way. We see in verse 3, Matthew continues to make clear what he's been doing already in these first two chapters. He's showing us how many prophecies from of old Jesus was fulfilling. 
How many are being fulfilled in the life of Jesus? And we see another one here as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, this prophecy about John. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this prophecy had come hundreds of years before, and now John understands, and Matthew's making clear, this is John fulfilling that prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. And his role is to go before the king and say, make way for the king. Prepare the way. The king is just about to step onto the scene. Now, the image from Isaiah was from the culture that day when a king came the, the, sort of, the advanced team would go before the king, and if necessary, they would, they would build a road. They would clear the way. So there was a, a clear, easy path for the king to come on. And so John understands himself as this special forerunner coming before Jesus, preparing the way for the Messiah. And we see his message in brief in verse 2. Look down at verse 2. John comes preaching this. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his message is the kingdom of heaven is now at hand, or the kingdom of heaven has now come near. How is this so? How is it that the kingdom of God is now at hand? It is because the king is now at hand. Wherever the king is, his kingdom is with him. And so that's the message. The king is now at hand. The king has now come near. Notice it's not that people have now made their way to the king. It's not they've somehow climbed their way towards him, but no, it is the king has come to them. God always is the one who comes to his people. God is always the one who pursues us. It is not that we pull ourselves together and pursue him, but it is our gracious God who comes near, comes pursuing people like us. And so the central part of John's message is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this would have been thrilling news to God's people. For they had been told throughout the centuries, through the prophets, that God would send the Messiah, the one we call the Christ, the anointed one, the deliverer, the savior. And he would come and he would be the true king they'd always longed for. And the people were in the midst of hard times. They were under the heavy hand of Rome. So they were praying and longing that God would finally send this king who would set his people free. And the people didn't understand all that it would mean for the Messiah to come. And there were many misconceptions that we'll see throughout the Gospel of Matthew of what people thought or hoped the Messiah would be. But this announcement that the king is at hand, the king has come, would have been truly momentous. And why? It's because of who the king is and what he's like. And in the first two chapters of Matthew, we've already seen some of the ways that Jesus is so unlike every other king. For in his very name, we saw Jesus, he would come and save his people from their sins. So this king who comes, he is the one who saves, who delivers. He would also be called Emmanuel, meaning God has come near. So God himself has come near in this king. And this king, as we saw in the story of the wise men, this king was for all peoples, Jew and Gentile. So all the peoples could come to him. So that's why it is good news that the king and his kingdom are at hand. Now here it is called the kingdom of heaven. 
And what's meant by kingdom, it is the, the reign of the king. Now, the reign of the king is not primarily geographic. It, it may at times include that, but it is everywhere the king has his influence and power at work. And Matthew here uniquely primarily uses the kingdom of heaven in this gospel where the other gospel writers use the kingdom of God. Now, on one level, they refer to the same thing, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. There is the reign of King Jesus. But the kingdom of heaven is also he implied by this. Matthew is saying this is the heavenly kingdom in contrast to or as opposed to every other kingdom. So Matthew makes clear, he shows that they're at odds. Every earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. And this very real heavenly kingdom will one day be fully present in the new heavens and the new earth. So how should a person respond if the true king has come near? That's what John's saying. The king has come. What do we do in light of that? What's the wisest thing to do? It would be to turn to the king. The king has come. Turn to the king. Look to the king. In order to turn to the king, though, you have to turn away from other things. Turn away from lesser things. Turn away from our own little kingdoms. And that is what it means to repent. So the message is the king and his kingdom have come near. It is good news that the king, the savior, has come. And in light of that good news, what should we do? Turn, turn away from where we've been going and turn to the true king who's come. And so the message of John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll see Jesus will begin his preaching in the same way. Repent for the king has come near. And that's the same message we'll see preached by the apostles in the book of Acts. Repent. The kingdom has come. Now the response to the news that the perfect kingdom has come is to understand how imperfect, how sinful we are. The righteous king has come, which reveals just how thoroughly unrighteous every one of us are. Every person, by nature and by ongoing choice, we all live in rebellion against the king. We all want to be the king of our own lives. We don't want to answer to anyone else, only ourselves. So who are you to tell me to do this, much less a God who would speak to every area of life? So when the perfect king comes, the news is an invitation. Come to the king. Come to his kingdom. And in order to do that, though, you must turn back. Turn back from your rebellion. Turn back from running from the king and turn to the king. This is what repentance is. And this repentance is a change of mind, but it's also more than that. It's a change of, of mind and heart and direction. I've been walking this way in opposition to the king. The news is the king has come. He's there. I must turn back to him. It's the picture of repentance. This decision, but it's a decision that shows itself in outward behavior. It's not simply something that I say or not simply something that I think, although I may think it and say it. It also involves outward action. And so by the proclamation of the need of repentance, John is clearly seeking to surface the sinfulness of all people, including himself. 
John the Baptist himself was sinful. He also was in need of repentance. So here's John out in the wilderness preaching repentance. But for God's people, the call to repentance in the wilderness was actually not new at all. In in their heritage, in the story of their people, it had happened before as God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years during the Exodus. God had brought them powerfully out of slavery. God had delivered them. God had saved them. But the people continued to wander in sin. So they found themselves out in the wilderness sinning and needing to repent. And sinning and needing to repent. And out in the wilderness near the Jordan, the message of repentance was preached to them. And so for any Jew with any grasp of history of their own people, they would see and understand there's something in this imagery of John out in the wilderness near the river, saying, repent, turn back to God. So this is clearly a massive moment, a turning point in God's great redemptive plan. The king had been promised. The king is on the verge of stepping onto the scene. So we see the announcement of the king. But then second, we see responses to the king. Responses to the king in verses 5 through 10. So what was the response to this strange messenger, John? And his preaching out in the wilderness of the coming king and the need of repentance. And we see in verse 5 and 6 that many people went out to hear him in the wilderness. This ongoing ministry of John was not some one-day preaching thing, but it seems to have gone on for months. And John was extremely popular. Masses of people are going out to hear him. And apparently these people aren't turned off by his call to repent. I mean, our world today, if that was like, come here, someone tell you to repent, probably not the fastest way to sort of fill up an auditorium. And yet for some reason, the people here don't seem to be put off by that. Or at the very least, however off-putting repentance is, the good news the king has come outweighs it. So I go, if I need to repent, okay, but the king has been promised. If he's really coming, I'm going to go out and be a part of what is happening. So the people were coming to grips with the reality of their own sinfulness. And evidently, they're freely confessing their sin. And we see that as the people are going out, they were being baptized by John in the Jordan River. Repenting, being baptized, confessing their sin. So connected to this call to repentance was an outward action of baptism. Now John's baptism here was unique to him and was in some ways quite new and radical. Previously among God's people, there had been a type of baptism that was used when a Gentile would convert to Judaism. It was a picture of a ritual washing of the defilement of their past, a washing of their sins, Also, the the Jews at times had a baptism, but it was a baptism where they baptized themselves as another means of ritual washing. But here, the Jews, these are not Gentiles being baptized. These are Jews being baptized. And here, they're being baptized by someone else. They're not doing some self-baptism, some self-washing. So this baptism of John is a picture of our, our need of forgiveness and the washing away of our sin. 
But this repentance and this baptism of John were unique and preparatory. In fact, for a very brief period of time during John's ministry out in the wilderness, this baptism is necessary. It's helpful, but this baptism passes away. So just in case you're a Christian, you're beginning to wonder, wait, I was never baptized in the baptism of John. Do I need to go have that baptism? No. For John's baptism is only for this moment. For Jesus, the king who is on the scene, he would bring a new baptism. And this baptism of Jesus would become essential for his disciples and for all future disciples. In Jesus' baptism that we'll see more of next week, in Christian baptism, in that we understand the king has come. And the king died on a cross in the place of sinners. He was buried and raised on the third day in order to provide this free gift of salvation. And a part of this salvation is the forgiveness of sins. It is new life. And so in baptism, it tells the story that we were buried with Christ and raised with Christ. So today, a person comes to understand our own need of salvation. We understand what Jesus Christ has done. We repent and believe in Christ, and then we're baptized after that, depicting, depicting what has already happened, how we're uniquely, spiritually now united with Christ in his burial and in his resurrection how we have died to sin and we've been raised to new life in Christ. And as John is preaching here, the crowds are coming out and it seems that John welcomes the vast majority. Whoever wants to come and hear, he's glad for them to come. Whoever wants to come and be baptized, evidently he's glad to baptize them. But we do see a different response to some in verse 7. Look down at verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So here he's speaking to the cultural and religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these groups were tremendously devout in their practice of the Jewish faith. Now, there would have been a variety of opinions of the, the average Jew in that day of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but however much people might have disliked them in some ways, they would have said, these are certainly more holy than any of the rest of us. I mean, they look down their nose at us at times, they're, they're religiously superior in the way they relate to us, but, but these folks are more devout than any of us are. And yet here, John calls them a brood of vipers. Lest you wonder, that, that's not a compliment. So he calls them snakes. He condemns the apparently, or the, the ones who would be thought of to be the most holy. Here he calls them a brood of snakes. Children of a viper. Now who is it that's a serpent? Who, uh, the, the ultimate serpent, Satan himself. So he's saying you, you are like the children of Satan. And like snakes in the wilderness, when a fire comes and the snakes come out of their hole to flee the fire, he says, what you're doing, Pharisees and Sadducees, is you're simply trying to flee the wrath to come. You're just trying to escape wrath, so that's why you're here. They only want to avoid. Now, to seek to avoid wrath is a wise and rational choice, but avoiding wrath alone is not sufficient. We're not only to flee the wrath to come, but we are to flee to the king. 
to flee to the Savior, to run to him. So friends, this is a warning of a, a very real eternal judgment. It should feel weighty for us to think about. Help is needed. We do need deliverance, but we flee to the one who has provided it for us. And so John warns them. He confronts them. He says to them, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you, the religious leaders, are truly repenting, show it in the way that you're living. Real fruit, not fake fruit. Show evidence that God is really at work in your life. Show evidence that you're really trying to trust in God. So he's warning them, don't simply trust in religious appearances and activity, but there must truly be a change of heart. He also warns them not to rely on their own family line, as they they would have said, we're we're sons of Abraham. Who are you? We're we're in the, the line of God's people. Absolutely, we're on the inside. And he warns them, that's not sufficient. And he warns the trees that don't bear fruit aren't true trees, and they will be cut down. And friends, these warnings are relevant for us as well. We should be careful of thinking, the temptation to think that Outward morality alone is sufficient. We we do want to be outwardly moral. But it's more than that. Sometimes we can fool ourselves by being outwardly appearing good and our hearts are far from God. We shouldn't even think that ongoing disciplined religious activity is enough. It's good. It's helpful. God's people are helped by disciplined practices of of choosing to gather with God's people, of of crafting rhythms in our life to take in God's word and to pray. But but those rhythms are not enough. They they are the means by which we know the king. And even a, a family connection to God's people isn't sufficient. So sometimes we think to ourselves, I'm a good person. In the end, the good will outweigh the bad. And whatever measurement there will be, I'm good enough, we think. Or some say, well, well I was baptized as an infant, so I, I grew up in church, at least for a while, so, so what happened then is sufficient for life. Or some would say, well, my, my parents, my family, they've all been a part of church. My family are Christians, so therefore that must make me a Christian as well. Or some would even say, well, well I attend church every Sunday. I mean, I'm willing to get up and and go and gather with God's people, so that's sufficient. Or even that I serve regularly in the ministry of the church. Those are good things, helpful things, but but they alone are not sufficient. The message of Christianity is that we must look to Christ alone for salvation. He is the one who's provided this great salvation. These other things I described, many of those are, are actions that flow from salvation. Because we've known this great Savior, because we trust in the King, that does shape the way that we serve and give of our time and how we spend our days. But we have to trust in Christ alone. So we see responses to the King. But then third, we see the way of the King. The way of the King in verse 11 and 12. If we look at the text, we see that John the Baptist was a sensation at the moment. I mean, crowds are coming to him. I mean, try to imagine your life. Whatever it would be in your uh, area of life where you would be incredibly popular. And people love to hear your voice. 
Crowds are coming. I mean, it's intoxicating. Powerful. And that's what's happening to John. I mean, the crowds are coming. Some people were even thinking, maybe John's the Messiah. Some people were saying that. Maybe this guy's the promised one. So, so all the people are flocking to him. He's speaking the very word of God. He's playing a, a key role in all of history. But notice what he says, verse 11. He who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Elsewhere, John will say, he must become greater, I must become less. So here John clearly, gladly, chooses to place himself under Jesus. Seeks to humble himself under the king. In order to try to show how much greater Jesus is, John says he's not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. So John understands and embraces the fact that Jesus, the king, is infinitely greater. That there's no one like King Jesus. And so John chooses to place himself under Jesus. And if this doesn't crush John, it's for the good of John that he chooses to humble himself. So he tells us that Jesus, the king, is greater, but also that Jesus' baptism is better as well. John says that his baptism is with water for repentance, but Jesus would baptize with water and fire. So John's baptism was only an outward baptism, symbolizing something that was important, repentance, but only temporary. But Jesus, the king, would bring this gift of salvation. And after this salvation, Christians are baptized as an outward picture of what has happened. And in this salvation, the, the spirit work, they're baptized, this, the text tells us, Jesus' baptism is with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's why we believe that the Christians are reborn. There is a new birth. Because the Spirit comes inside and brings transformation, brings life. The Spirit comes with fire. And so Jesus offers this baptism, this one baptism of the Spirit and the fire. This one baptism of Jesus is offered, but the response to the baptism of Jesus, to the presence of Jesus, divides the world into two different groups. Those who receive and those who reject it. We see this in verse 12. Jesus is the one who will ultimately judge. And in his judgment, the wheat will be separated from the chaff, and the chaff will be burned in unquenchable fire. What is the wheat here? Those who receive by faith the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ has provided. And what is the chaff? It is all who refuse Jesus. All who reject his gift of salvation and continue in their sin, in their rebellion, and they will receive the judgment that all of us deserve. Every one of us deserve judgment. But there is a salvation in Christ available to all who will look away and look to Christ. So John clearly understands and anticipates the greatness of King Jesus. And in fact, Jesus will turn out to be even greater than John imagined. John had an idea, but like all the Jews, they had no idea just how beautiful Jesus would actually be. 
And now on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we we see it more clearly even than John did. For, For in the scriptures, in the gospels, we see the love and the grace, the kindness and the compassion, the power of Jesus Christ. We see his self-giving love in going to the cross in the place of sinners like us. John could call the people to repentance, but but John could not atone for their sin. Only Jesus could, and Jesus did. Through his cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserve in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserve. And now, because of Christ, Christians do bear fruit. He called the Pharisees to bear fruit. We bear fruit today we bear fruit as we remain in Christ. And Christ is the one who produces the fruit in us. The Spirit brings about the fruit of the Spirit in God's people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on through the list. Friends, this is the greatness of the King. Greater even than John imagined. And so because of who Jesus is and what he's like, the wisest choice we would ever make is to align ourselves with this king. So how do we do that? Well, one friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you would join us on a Sunday morning, either online or in person. And we so would love for you to consider, could there really be a king like this? A king who breaks into the world and doesn't say, hey, build some roads for me, clear the path for me, but a king who comes that he might save. A king who comes and humbles himself. A king who comes and serves and loves. Could there be a king like that? So we'd love for you to feel welcome here over the weeks and months ahead to explore, could there be a king like this? Or maybe the fact is you've been exploring for some time. And maybe today's the day but you might turn to him by faith. Wherever you are on that journey, we would love to tell you more. I'll be outside following the service. I'd love to chat with you. You can note it on your connection card, maybe, if you'd like to know more as well. Or perhaps you are a believer. You've placed your faith in Christ, but you've never followed in baptism. And so, so we're thinking about baptism last week and this week. We'd love to tell you more about that. So you can mark on the back of the connection card, if you just like more information, like what does baptism mean? How does that play out? For those of us who are Christians, how do we align ourselves with the kingdom of Jesus? Friends, we want to continually seek to understand how different Jesus' kingdom is. Our world is consistently trying to shape us to live for lesser kingdoms, to live for lesser things, to grab our allegiance. So because of that, we'll need to continually be reframing our worldview realigning our thoughts with the way of Jesus. Friends, that's one of the many reasons we need the church. For we live day by day and all these voices saying, live for this, give your allegiance to that. And so we gather in humble means, hearing God's word preached, singing, praying, studying the word in smaller groups like community groups or or one-on-one so that through that God would be renewing our minds. And friends, as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew over these weeks ahead, we will see what Jesus' unique kingdom is like. And friends, it is shockingly different. It is at odds with everything we may see and think the world is all about. But it takes work because the world is always trying to reshape us. We also want to align our lives 
under the king. An evident part of being a part of Jesus' kingdom is that we humble ourselves under the king. That's what we see John the Baptist doing. In spite of his popularity, in spite of being famous, he says, I'm less and I'll become lesser so that he, my king, would become greater. Now, in our world today, we'd say, John, don't be so hard on yourself. Don't think of yourself so poorly. Think more highly of yourself. But, but John is not crushed by that. In fact, this is a freeing outlook for all of us, friends. The natural bent is for us to be at the center of our own lives. And so we build all of our times, all of our friendships, all that we do around ourselves. We live, whether we think of it or not, in, in constant sort of self-promotion and self-protection. But here we see in John that the life is found, freedom is found when Jesus is at the center of our lives, not when we're at the center. That that's where life is found. It is in losing ourselves from the center that we find the life that is worth living. Friend, how might those around you see a difference in you if, if that marked your daily living? I mean, couldn't that free you at work to work differently? If you didn't have to be about self-promotion, if we weren't so insecure, if we could humble ourselves and, and push others forward because our life is not only about this, but what would that look like on campus? If that was your attitude towards other students, towards those in authority over you, you gladly humbled yourselves. That you weren't crushed when you had a bad score on an exam. You weren't too high on yourself when you had the highest score in the class. But you were freed from that. Because Christ is at the center. Friends, that's where freedom is found. Humbling ourselves under the king. And then finally, to give our days pointing to the king. That's what John does. He spends his days saying, look to the king. King has come. Friends, that's what we should spend our days doing. Across this room, we're scattered all over the city. Today, tomorrow. So in your neighborhood, in your workplace, on campus, in your family, we have the chance to join in the mission of the king and say, don't look at me, look to the king. Parents, that's your mission. To point your kids to the king. Friends, as co-workers, work hard to the glory of God. And when given the opportunity, how do you point co-workers to the king? Friends, God's brought, brought some of you to the campuses of our city. We're glad that you're here. Yes, to, to complete a program, to, to achieve. But there's something more than that. While you're there on campus, to, to point to the king. But friends, that is what our friends and neighbors, co-workers, and absolute strangers need most is that they too might know that the king has come, that the king saves, the king is full of grace and mercy, kindness, and the king welcomes all who will come to him by faith. Prince John was the most unique spokesman ever because he came to prepare the way for the most unique king in the history of the world. King who's alive today, King who saves, King who preserves, King who is faithful, and King who welcomes. Friends, that's good news for us today. 
Now, today is a means of response. We have a chance to, to do several things. One is to, if maybe there's some questions you have, you can note that on the connection card. In just a moment, we'll receive the offering bath, and you can drop it in the basket. Or if you're watching online, there's a connection form there. Maybe there's some questions you have, ways that we could pray for you. But, but also today, we're going to, if, for those who are Christians, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. So Jesus gives baptism to his people. It's the outward sign that we've placed our faith in Christ. And then following that, then God's people share a meal that Jesus gave to his disciples. And this meal, a reminder of what Christ has done. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us, providing for us the forgiveness of sins. Through that, Christ did for us what John could never do. John could not atone. Christ has provided it. And so if you're not a Christian today, we would ask you not to receive the bread and the cup. But during these moments, consider Christ. Could there be a king? Could there be a life of freedom where you're not at the center, but someone else is? For those who are Christians, we've repented, believed, we've been baptized. We invite you today to receive the bread and the cup with us. So near you, there should be, uh, probably under the seat in front of you or uh, near your seat, one of these little um, package things, and so I uh, invite you to go ahead and take a second, you, you peel off the top portion, and I'll lead us in receiving this together in a moment, you peel the top portion, it's a small wafer, the second portion for the cup. So in preparation for that, we're going to bow our heads for some of just silent self-examination, confession of sins, where we get to come clean to God, confessing our sins freely because of what Christ has done. And I'll lead us in receiving this together. So let's bow our heads for a time of silent confession. Then I'll lead us in receiving the bread and the cup. Let's bow our heads together.